You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 68 is Billy James, whose music name is Ant B. You're right now listening to Eating Chocolate Cake in the Bath from his first album, Pure Electric Honey, recorded in 1989. Most of his time today is spent on his business, Glass Onion Promotions, through which I've gotten many of the guests for this podcast, so I'm very glad to actually talk to Billy at length here. We're going to talk today about two songs from his latest album, 2011's Electronic Church Music, Flutterby Butterfly, which was a collaboration with Michael Bruce of the Alice Cooper Group, and The Language of the Body, a collaboration with the late David Allen from Gong, and with Frank Zappa Sidemen, Don Preston, Bunk Gardner, and Buzz Gardner. Then we're going to look back to 1994's With My Favorite Vegetables and Other Bizarre Music album. The song is The Girl with the Stars in Her Hair. We'll conclude by listening to another song released on that album, a Beach Boys cover he recorded in 1990, Do You Like Worms, which was actually mistaken for being the Beach Boys themselves and released on several bootlegs of the Smile album before that was actually available legitimately. For more information, check out ant-bee.com. For more information on this podcast, look for me at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you enjoy this, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played some of Eating Chocolate Cake in the Bath from Pure Electric Honey so we can hear the Beach Boys thing. When I think of your sound, you've got these sort of very distinct elements that you've got your overwhelming vocal layering. So you started as a drummer, mostly just playing drums behind people. Is that right? I went to Berkeley College of Music in mm-hmm. 1979. Pre to that, I played in a lot of bar bands and things like that. My brother-in-law now had a band, uh, Rod Martin, so I played with him. And But after that, I went to Berkeley College of Music. And then after Berkeley, I moved to Los Angeles and did some stuff with a variety of musicians. I played on Steve I's first record, and then I, I played percussion. did a lot of percussion on different projects. I played on Bob Harris, who was the original one of the vocalists and keyboard players with Frank Zappa, and I played on his first solo record called The Great Nostalgia. And then several New Age records. I did tablas and percussion and things like that. It wasn't until 1989, eh, maybe it had been 88, I, re- I had received a uh, four-track reel-to-reel deck. So I started experimenting with loops and things like that and backwards tracks and all kinds of stuff. It was like a first time I had a, a actual reel-to-reel recorder. Also, you know, I've always been very much into, other than, you know, I like a lot of different genres of music, but, you know, one particular genre of music is, you know, 1967 psychedelia type of music, particularly the, the Beatles, Magical Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper and the Beach Boys Smile and... Uh, you know, the Pink Floyd Pipers at the Gates of Dawn, and on and on. So anyway, at uh, I, was, I was doing some experimenting on the four-track reel-to-reel that I'd received. I was listening to two things that were very influential to me at that time as well. One was I had received the bootleg of the Beach Boys Smile outtakes. And, and this is way before the Beach Boys had ever released any of this material and that it was really, you know, now there's like a zillion bootlegs, which I'm on several, but uh, at the time there was only one, and very few people really knew about these smile sessions as opposed to now. So that was a very big influence on me. And then I was also listening to the Dukes of Stratosphere EP. Uh, I was working at Gem Records at the time. An EP came in, a vinyl EP, by a band called the Dukes of Stratosphere. And keep in mind, nobody knew it was XTC at the time, but we just, you know, everybody in the, uh, you know, in the sales room and everything loved it. I thought it was just amazing, and I thought it was incredible. So I, I was heavily listening to that. I did eventually, you know, obviously like everybody else, find out that the Dukes of Stratosphere was XTC. But at the time, I didn't really know that. And so that really influenced me. So I started doing all these experimenting on the four-track reel-to-reel. So then, you know, in Los Angeles, there is a label called Vox Records and Bomp Records, and it was run by a very well-known guy named Greg Shaw, who was around since the early 70s and did a lot of stuff with Iggy and the Stooges and different people like that. And and so at any rate, I said, "Eh, what the heck, I'm going to send it over to this guy and his label, because I had seen at that time, I was working at a lot of music distribution companies at the time, Jam Records and Sounds Good and a bunch of different ones. And they would carry Vox and Bomp product. And there was a big kind of a psychedelic resurgence going on in the late 80s, early 90s. A lot of bands from Europe, 
a guy named Bevis Frond was big, and and uh, there was a bunch of different ones. And so I sent the, the the tape over to Greg Shaw, and so I got a phone call, and he said he just he absolutely loved it. And I'm actually one of the only artists, so he wanted to sign me to his psychedelic label called Vox, V-O-X-X. And I'm one of the only artists, and I went and met him in his warehouse and all that. And as I said, I'm one of the only artists that he financed the recordings of the record. He liked my music so much, I got an advance from Greg Shaw, which is pretty much unheard of. <laughs> so I uh, took the money and went, went into a studio. Now, this was a 16-track studio at the time. You know, since then, all my other albums were on 24-track, but went in and started recording what would turn out to be Pure Electric Honey. And the record, which came out, it was actually received, garnered rave reviews all over the planet. And again, as I was saying, there was a big psychedelia mu- movement going on at the time, music movement, kind of resurgence. And there was a lot of, you know, there was no internet at the time, but there was the thing called the fanzine at the time. And so all through Europe and America, there was these little sort of homemade fan magazines, you know, that they people were putting out, and some of them would have flexi-discs in them, some would have seven-inch vinyl in them, some would have cassettes. So I wound up getting tons of reviews in a lot of those magazines and and releasing single, unreleased tracks and things like that, and there was like a German seven-inch that someone put out of my music, and uh, so a lot of that type of stuff, and, and so I really got embedded into that sort of scene, and actually uh, the album went really well in Greece. I had tons of airplay and and reviews out of Greece, which was amazing. So that's sort of how it all kind of came about. You know, again, I was so influenced in kind of experimenting with sound and and the reel-to-reel that, you know, I kind of just veered toward that psychedelic type of a thing. You know, my music always evolved, so I wasn't about to stay doing another five records in that sort of vein. I mean, my music sort of, you know, they all have a link, sort of like Zappa has a link in his music, but I wasn't going to just stay, you know, do another five psychedelic type records like that. I uh, had to, you know, grow and, and evolve as I did, you know, up until my last record. Well, let's jump to our first song that we're going to play in full, Flutter by Butterfly. So that is from the last record, Electronic Church Music 2011 release. I know you co-wrote this with Michael Bruce and that this album was a long time in the making, that sometimes the main tracks that you then elaborated to become what we'll, we'll hear here were done years before. Can you say just a little bit of how this particular song came about? Yeah, well, Michael Bruce is the original songwriter and guitarist and keyboard player with the Alice Cooper group. He wrote all the hits, No More Mr. Nice Guy and I'm 18 and those type of hits, Schools Out with Alice. And so I had worked with Michael in the early 90s. I helped him write a biography. I toured with him behind his band. I'm an old Alice Cooper fan, among other type of music. And so this was a track that Michael had done, I'm going to say, in the late 70s. It was an instrumental backing track. And I took the track and I slowed it down, and then I added vocals and other instrumentation onto it, violin. I had someone come and do a recorder, flute-type part, and I added Mellotron. I've got a really nice Mellotron here. And made it into something different. It's very much more like a Beatle-ish type of a thing. If you hear the original, it sounds nothing like it, because, again, it's been slowed down. But it's more of a Beatle-ish type of thing, you know, and again, if anything on the record, that's that's very similar to my psych- the psychedelic type of stuff, you know, and, and the Beatle, Beach Boys type stuff. Sometimes you see 
So I, I see Michael was credited that he did the guitars and the bass and the the main keyboard part. That this backing thing, this do do da da da, this little easy listening kind of seventies thing that's going under the whole thing. So that was just a pre like it even sounds sonically different from the rest. So I could I could tell that that did you even spruce that up with your percussion? Yeah, there's some of my percussion on there, and there's but yeah, again now the master tape was from what forty years ago, thirty something years ago. So. Sonically, you know, there was a lot of hiss, so I was trying to clean it up. And you can even hear Michael singing in the background there, singing something. But I'm kind of happy with the mix, but I, I'm I'm signed to, a, right now, a, a label out of the U.K. called Gonzo Multimedia. They re-released all my albums, and as a matter of fact, they are the ones who put out Pure Electric Honey for the first time on CD. And this was, you know, the past couple of years. And they want to release a collection of Ant B material. And I am going to take Flutter By and Butterfly and a couple other things, and I'm going to remix it. I'm probably going to mix it in mono, or I'm going to do something different, because I'm not 100% crazy about the mix. So it will be a little different than what's on electronic church music. The recorder part, is that that main riff, the do do do, is that done by recorder or is that that's a Mellotron sound? That's the Mellotron. And I've got a Mellotron. I mean, if you, you listen to the patches on this, you know, to, with the tapes, I shouldn't say patches, the tapes, uh, you can hear the Genesis, the Watcher of the Skies beginning patch. <laughs> you can hear, uh, it's amazing, really. You, they have the flute one. It's the Strawberry f- Fields flute. It sounds like you have that in a, a little bit. I'm hearing a couple distinct sounds out of it, I guess, even in this song, between the main riff, and then you've got a couple kind of fills running, running right up to the main riff from the intro and some other things. The original version, like I said, was a lot faster, so I slowed this down, number one. I may have edited, you know, to make it a little bit longer, possibly. I'm not 100% sure. But again, primarily, most of that's the backing track that he did. And then I added a lot of stuff on there. Like I said, the the mellotrons and all the vocals and the flutes. And there's a string thing, a violin piece part that I did on it. And there's also vibe type of bells that I put on there. And so... That's generally, you know, what I did. And then, of course, I sent it over to Michael, and he told me if he liked it or not, you know, and he loved it. You know, he seems to love all the stuff we do together. I have to say, he's sort of like my, I'm not sure if he's my John Lennon or my Paul McCartney, but we're one of them, (laughs) because we both write very well together when we're together. It's quite magical what happens when we do, which is very, very rarely these days. But when we were working together, we did come up with quite a lot of good material. And that actual butterfly noise, you know, I I say that because I've seen the video. It's where, (laughs) so right at the end of the chorus and everything drops out and you've got... Is that, again, Mellotron, or is that tape effects? That's actually a piece of paper. Then I'm just (laughs) fluttering it, and then I threw it through an effect, some sort of flange, to make it sound like a butterfly. And uh, a guy that actually, uh, because I work with John Anderson, I'm his personal publicist for past seven years, and also I do background vocals for him and stuff, is that his guy was doing video work for him, a guy named Victor. He's the one who put the video together for Flutter by Butterfly, and I think he did a pretty good job, you know, for what it is. And he synced that up really well with the butterfly flying. 
Now, given that you are a writer and that you're obviously very verbal, a lot of your songs don't have a lot of lyrics in them. I mean, even this one, I I thought it was great that, you know, you've got the introduction, then the verse is one line. And then we go right back to it. Not even just back to the Michael's original riff, but the entire, you know, Mellotron. I assume the the sections are cut and pasted, you know, that you didn't do this because they're so exact. Yeah, no, I do a lot of cut and paste. I mean, although I don't do it through the computer, I'm embarrassed to say. I still do it manually with CD decks and, and dubbing decks and stuff. You know, I'll eventually, you know, all my friends and musicians say, hey, you got to get on, you know, do it digitally and do it through the computer. And they're right, it'd make it a lot easier. But at the moment, the way I'm, I'm set up, a, a lot of it's done by, you know, it's got to be on this beat. You got to push the button at the right time. And if you like a half a second off, it's not going to be right on. So, you know, it takes 10 times before you get it completely right on the beat and yeah because i do a lot of that it's you know old-fashioned type sampling type of thing which i i find intriguing yeah because i like things to be real exact even though it's it's hard if anybody it's it's very difficult to be exact on a lot of stuff but i you know i try my best and being a percussionist it sticks out to me more than most people if things are a little off or the rhythm's a little off not that there aren't parts that are on the album just going back to the how few lyrics there are in not only this song but most of your songs is it just it's a completely different part of your brain that is working when you're engaging in this and or is it more a, a matter of the style i guess there is some old psychedelic stuff that is pretty lyric heavy even early pink floyd stuff like it's not the the one line and move on here's the thing is i'm not the greatest lyricist in the world and so the way i write lyrics is very abstract that's the only way i'm really able to write lyrics i can't really sit there and write a normal love song or that type of thing or pour out my soul and make and in, in, in poetry i've never been good at doing that even though i re- write books and i'm you know that's just not one thing i do Almost in the way that John Anderson does it, although he's like a a thousand times above me in doing that type of thing. But I write abstract sort of lyrics that they come out of me, and a lot of it just comes out subconsciously, a barrage of lyrics. And the other part of it is I go back and forth with my voice. You know, at points and times I think, eh, I don't want to hear my voice on this. I can't stand my voice, so I don't want to sing that much on this. Part of it comes down to that. You know, when I was... 20 years ago, I sang more like a butterfly. Now I'm not, even though I'm doing a lot of singing and I'm actually doing background vocals on this huge uh, piece for John Anderson called Zamoran, which was like the follow-up to Elias the Sun Hillow. And it's very difficult uh, singing. And as far as my own material, I don't do that much singing as much as I did before on my own material. And I don't have as much interest in it as I did 20 years ago when I thought I was one of the Beach Boys. And again, like I said, lyrics is just for me, I more come up with abstract type of stuff. And there were a lot more lyrics on a lot of those songs on, on electronic church music, but then I kind of edit them down. Well, let's get a second song on the table here to hear this different approach that this is largely an instrumental piece, the language of the body. Now, of course, there is very prominent lyrics, but it's not you. It's David Allen of Gong doing a a sort of a chant, a little beat rap here through the beginning of the song. And then you've, you've got folks from Zappa, Don Preston, who's been a guest here, as well as Bunk and Buzz Gardner. But here's where you're doing, you're pulling out the stops in terms of you're matching them as a doing the Zappa drums, percussion, sputtering, no apparent beat to the structure as a whole. It's just completely freeform, this beginning section at least. That piece is interesting, a couple of reasons why. Is it, yeah, it's, it's a beat poetry piece right from David Allen, who he sent that to me maybe a year or so before the record came out. So I was trying to think of what to do with it, and A, I know he always appreciated the mothers, and so I was always, you know, one thing and decided, well, what would the mothers and gong sound like? So that was, some, that was part of the reason in my mind. The percussion wash is a direct uh, homage to the percussion wash on the early Mother's records, there was an album called Burnt Weenie Sandwich, and there's a track called Theme to Burnt Weenie. There's a percussion wash very much like that that runs through the piece while Frank is doing a guitar solo, and it's, it's sped up and slowed down. So that's where I took that from. That's a very definite influence from that. So that's why I ran that through underneath David doing his beat poetry. It's Bunk Gardner and Buzz Gardner, Bunk, when I was living in Los Angeles, came over to my house I was living at, and I recorded him for several hours playing flute and sax and clarinet 
because I knew in the future I'd be using these tapes for the next millennium. <laughs> so I knew that, you know, so I got it. And same with Don Preston. I went to his house and, you know, when I was living in Los Angeles and had him record tons of synthesizer and different type of things that I knew that, you know, through the years I'll be able to use. And then Buzz's track is from something that Bunk sent me from years previous to that. So I took Buzz's track, which was from, I think, the 70s, Bunk's track, which was from the early 90s, and Don Preston's. So those things went on the first part. The second part is a electronic piece from Don Preston that when I was in Los Angeles, he, you know, he did for me. And so that's in the middle there is this uh, electronic interesting piece from Don Preston. And I thought it was so good, I didn't want to play on it. I wanted to leave it as it is because it's uh, quite amazing. Don Preston, is, uh, again, was the first keyboard player and synthesizer player with Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention. Went on to do amazing other things uh, and he's still working today, him and Bunk, as the, uh, at the grandmothers, Bunk and Don show and the grandmothers. And anyway, he's an amazing electronic music artist and keyboard player and synthesizer player. And so, that middle section is a music concrete piece by Don, and then brought everything back into it again with, you know, the first section, then you have that section, and then the third section again is sort of like the beginning section with uh, Bunk and uh, Buzz Gardner and more percussion and David Allen, who's become the divided alien now. So it's David Allen and his voice sped up. So you got David's voice and then a sped-up Munchkin voice, which he becomes the divided alien, and which is one of his names. So it's the language of the body. Again, it's tribute to David Allen, tribute to the mothers of invention. The gong met the mothers. That was the happiest time of your life. <laughs> And what's more, I'm pretty jaded right now, because in the bright lights of every night, pretty girl faces and crazy head cases, and they love to me. I'm just a player, you see, in the fantasy of this place and space. And it's a temporary game, and the fame of the name is a brief last man, but it doesn't last longer than the next best crest of the wave of the day, so there's nobody around who to tell you what it's all about. But I think you see through it all. Yeah... I think you see through it all And I wonder who you really are behind the bar With your blue tattoo and your peroxide hair And your shield and your protection as you look in my direction All the language of the body is a question of suggestion But there is no doubt that there's no chance of any answer There is no doubt, no chance of any answer There is no doubt, no chance of any answer Cause I'm playing in the band so you understand I won't be around to find out
So you said a lot about the basic structure. So including the, the way that it gets out of the electronic part with this tape recording of people laughing and then you're treating the laughs with a delay so that it becomes this more hypnotic, repetitive thing. That's your addition, right, of the tape work to get out of the electronics? There's a, the uh, chrome megaphone. You know, unfortunately, I can't remember these titles anymore. I got to look at them, but it's the plated megaphone of destiny, I believe is the name of the song on the Mothers of Invention, we're only in it for the money. I think it's the very final track on the album. And there is a section there where they're doing munchkinized laughing. And so, again, it's, you know, just taking elements, uh, you know, and sort of, you know, my tribute and just taking those elements and then throwing it into this piece. So that's really what that is. And, yeah, you know, sometimes when you're working on this type of stuff, there's got to be some sort of continuity between, the you know, everything that's going on in the music. So I had to figure some way to veer out of that electronic piece instead of just coming right back into it. I needed something else to bring it back into the more mother-esque part of the, of the piece, the end part of it. That's really what that is. And the laughing came from, I've got, you know, abundance of these test CDs with all kinds of different, you know, from laughter to all kinds of noise, you know, sound effects discs. So I've got just all different ones. And that's really where that came from. There was several different tracks of people laughing. And so then I took it and manipulated it, you know, sped up and different uh, effects on the laughing and that type of thing. So I was surprised that this intro jam thing, so it's still, it's, yeah, you doing the fast percussion with the horns against it, that you said these were all recorded at, at different times. So you're actually doing the percussion last, that you've got these pre-existent horn parts that apparently are not recorded at the same time that you're just laying over each other, and then you're jamming to that? Well, it's not even jamming. I mean, the percussion thing was something that's completely separate to anything else. So it was something that I put together, you know, it's drums, it's vibes, temple blocks, snare, timpani, even tablas, tambourine, cowbell, those type of things. And so I put together, it's a, called a percussion wash, which I've used on several songs throughout the 4 amp B records. And so I take this percussion wash, you know, and, and it's all random. Nothing's in any time on this type of stuff. That type of stuff is completely random. You know, it's just play, one track play, and then another track play, and, and that type of a thing. I'll edit things so you don't have a thousand things going on at once, so I'll take some of it. We're only let two tracks run, and then I'll take one track and put up another one, let three tracks run, and then I'll only have one track running, and that type of thing. So it's all experimental sort of mixing for just a, a complete percussion wash. And then you take that wash, and I, you know, I've got Bunk and Buzz's thing, so I have the wash going, and then I have David Allen's rap going on top of the wash, and then I'll take Bunk and throw those in just at separate parts, and bring them up and down at the same time. And so it's all, everything's experimental. There's no way I could do that a second time exactly the same way. There's just absolutely no way. It would be a completely different, I mean, I can generally, the idea will be the same, but there's no way everything would be the exact same. That's one piece that's very experimental in the mixing and editing of it. So you had David's thing that he just did acapella, right? And he just sent that to you as a standalone piece of tape? Right. He sent me a couple different versions of this poetry piece, and that's a little bit edited as well, because it was very long. And I'm first listening to it going, what am I going to do with this exactly? Because I wasn't sure, you know, and then I got the, well, beat poetry, and let's do some sort of avant-garde, you know, free-form, avant-garde type of stuff behind it, you know, free-form jazz, if you will, almost, behind this beat poetry type of thing. 
since obviously David's has a rhythm to it, it's beat, it establishes a rhythm. So was it even consistent enough? I haven't sort of listened to it through that you could, you could have used it as a metronome. It's not. Right. No, he, he's not doing anything to a metronome. And even, and there's no, if you've listened to that thing, it's definitely not. I mean, there's a tempo and a beat to it, but it's not on a definite click. There's no way I could do it. I mean, you could do a drum beat. I mean, there's another, you could do a drum beat and throw that on top, but there's no way it's going to sync up rhythmically exactly because he's not working. And I work with click. If I'm going to do something that's supposed to rhythmically sync up, I always use click tracks because I'm a percussionist and drummer and that stuff's very important to me. And so things have to be right there on the beat. I'm not much for slopping around and I never record stuff without using click tracks. But on that piece, there's no way I could do it. And on some other pieces that people send me, you know, there's like a piece that Peter Banks sent me and one that Jan Ackerman of Focus sent me. And those are things that they're already pretty much, you know, their parts are done that are not done to anything. So I have to adjust to them, you know, and then if it's pieces, you know, and now Flutter by Butterfly, that was a definite, there was a beat going on behind that. And it's, it's pretty steady. So, you know, I'm able to add things on the beat on something like that. It wasn't sort of just experimental. That was more of a song form and structure. And so I was able to uh, structure other instruments to coincide with that. All right, well, let's add to the picture. Let's get the third song out there. Uh, The Girl with the Stars in Her Hair. We're going back to your second album with My Favorite Vegetables and Other Bizarre Music, released 1994. This, again, has a video. People can look at it. It's kind of a a mix of the two styles. I mean, it's not the B section, you could say, is not the same as the Don Preston electronics thing. It's a more kind of like that. What's the transition song in Dark Side of the Moon where where they're running through an airport or something like this, this, you know, where you've got this electronic tape loop kind of thing going. The thing that is in between when you've got nice verse and chorus, and then that happens, and then another nice verse and chorus. I want to say a little about, you know, obviously you're at a very different point at this older album. Do you want to give some introductory words for this song? That was more of a commercial type of song. I mean, even though it, it's not really that commercial. It was, again, leaning towards 60s type of stuff, at least the vocals and the melody and all that. And it came out all right. I mean, I, I'm editing that. I'm not crazy about the keyboard part in there and so that's why I'm when this new version that you know on the compilation I'm putting out more of an edited version but I think the vocals are good and the melody is nice and the middle section actually if you start listening at the beginning for me I was thinking of the middle part of yes is close to the edge where the I get up I get down section and so if you listen to the bass and the pedal guitar thing that reminds me of Chris and that was the thought process of, of what I was thinking of when I did that section in the middle there. And then you do the round. Again, I do all the vocals. Nobody else does on, on any of that stuff. And so there's the vocal round that I would do. I like doing vocal rounds. I'm very happy with that section. I kind of like that section, probably better than the uh, the verse and chorus. I like that middle, the bridge or whatever you call it. I, I thought that came out really well. And I also thought in the video that section came out real well. It's very psychedelic and The guy who did the video, Fred Goss, went on to produce many uh, well-known TV shows, although I can't remember, Sons of Anarchy, I think, I'm not positive. But this was his very first music video, actually. And as he said, it was the Citizen Kane of rock videos. And it was interesting because it did get played in Japan and Australia and a couple different places, and it came out pretty well. It's definitely different. It's a long video and a surprise ending there, if you watch the end. At the time, I was trying to get a record deal when I first did that song. I wound up getting signed to a label called Taste Divine in England. They're the ones who put that record out. But at the time when I first did the song, I wasn't signed to anybody. And I was actually had a um, music attorney that was trying to get me a record deal. And he kept telling me, you got to do something commercial. you got to do something. You know, no one's ever going to sign you doing stuff that you did on Pure Electric Honey. It's too far out, you know. And so that was my attempt trying to do something commercial and when he heard it he's like ah he just gave me that look like what are you you nuts you know and so and of course yeah he never did get me a deal people passed on it they just thought it was too far out interesting enough after the second record came out and i was still working on my third record i actually got a solicitation from island records in england they were interested in signing me and they said can you please send us your new material and i did send them that girl with the stars uh, here we go around the lemon tree and a couple other things i thought was kind but i ignorantly sent them a copy of pure electric honey as well i shouldn't have done that i should have just sent them the cassette of four or five tracks 
of the newer stuff that was a little bit more commercial, if you can call it that, than what's on Pure Electric Honey, because there's nothing commercial on that album. And so uh, I got a letter back from the head person saying, uh, you know, we listened to the album. So they didn't listen to the cassette. They listened to the album. It says, we listened to the album, and although I thought it was amazing and was really championing, trying to get, you know, whatever she said, she said that I couldn't get the rest of the people excited. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kicked myself because it's like, ah, why did I send them the record? If I would have sent them just a cassette, you know, and they heard Girl to Stars and Here We Go Around the Lemon Tree and more of these more commercial type of, a, you know, the, I think I probably would have gotten a deal with them. But it wasn't meant to be, and that's what happened. in her hair
the stars in her hair. For a commercial song, you've got, you know, a good 20 seconds almost of this backwards tape noise, you know, and then you end it in the same way. Yeah, I'll tell you what that is, actually. When I was doing those New Age records, there was this one artist, and we were working on something, and an ice cream truck came by, and I said, hey, you ought to use that ice cream truck on the recording. And he looked at me, you know, real sarcastic, and said, you should use the ice cream truck on your record. (laughs) And that's what I did. That's a backwards ice cream truck. There's a dog barking also. You know, you hear the like that. So it's a dog backwards barking and an ice cream truck coming by. And then we've got this commercial part, which is just really bashes you over the head. It's got the Beach Boys thing, but it's much more hopped up. It's got your drums are actually prominent in this. So we, we're it's a new synthesizing those two parts of your psyche there. At the time, I was listening to a lot of uh, the Who Sell Out record. And I was trying that sort of a poor imitation of the great Keith Moon, and that's sort of what I was trying to play like at the time. Now that I think about it, because the other guys were playing more Beatlish type of playing, I should have played more of a straight Ringo type of a thing on it instead. Now, if I would do it over again, I would do that instead of the manic Keith Moon type of drumming, because it works okay. But And again, the recording, because we're still only on 16 track, actually, at the time we did this. I didn't move the 24 track, actually, till the third record. And so if I could have done it again, I would have done it. And interesting thing about it, even though, you know, in, in horoscope terms, the band that I had at the time, there was a Gemini, was the guitarist, the bassist was a Libra, and the keyboard player was a Pisces. So you got John, Paul, and George. The signs of John, Paul, and George. I'm a Scorpio, so I'm, I'm a water sign, but I'm not a Cancer like Ringo. But anyway, so the three of them together playing and had that sort of I don't know that Beatle type of thing, you know. And I just I, I, right now I kind of wish I would have been more intuitive at the time and changed the drumming on it. But that being said, and a lot of people like it the way it is. Now, was this a live band that you had worked up with, the, or did you kind of just get together to work on what would be this recording? Now, on that one, we did the, the actually, which is kind of rare, because a lot of most of my recordings are me flying stuff in, people, different tapes and different things, and nobody playing together. On that one, we're actually all four playing together the rhythm parts of it. So there is no other overdubs on the basic bed track, as you call it, or the backing track. So that is actually all of us. Were you familiar with these guys? They were in my Aunt B band at the time. I spent a long, long time trying to rehearse with these guys and put because my live set was more like a mother's invention concert because i can't sing and play drums at the same time so a lot of it was instrumental very difficult instrumental and a lot of different things i wrote when i was at berkeley and was like everything from the zappa to the beach boys to miles davis i mean compared to my albums the the live show was completely different, but it was still psychedelic and wild and different, but it took forever and rehearsals and rehearsals and tons of money and only did a few things. And so I regret that I spent all that money rehearsing this band to only do a couple things live when I should have just been spending the whole time in the studio. And that's another thing, because I probably could have whipped out another two or three albums at the money I spent trying to rehearse <laughs> these guys and put them together and try to do this live show. Because when I did the cover version of the Beach Boys' Do You Like Worms from the Smile Session, that got such amazing response. My idea was actually to do Aunt B's version of Smile. At that point in time, no one was you know, doing anything like that you know, from the Smile record. 
And I probably could have pulled it off, maybe. You know, there's some parts on it was on the real smile. It's so difficult, and you know, again, he's got tons of players playing on it and this and that. But that was the idea. But then I got involved in trying to do a live act and playing it around Los Angeles, and that kind of took away a lot of that. And so that never happened. Not only having to sing while playing yourself or get another drummer to fill in while you go up to the front, but then training people who are primarily instrumentalists to do anything replicating the kind of backing harmonies that you do against yourself seems a frustrating task. Yeah, I don't have anybody try to sing with me. I mean, I'm sure some, you know, when me and Michael Bruce sing together, we sound great together, but I let him take the lead, you know, on on that type of stuff, and I do the backing vocals. I've not really used anybody to try to sing behind me, so it would take a long time to teach them. And, uh, and then there are tracks that I have someone, you know, I have Napoleon Murphy Brock, lead singer from the Mothers, and Zappa's 70s band from 74 to 76, I believe it was, or 73. He sings lead vocal on one track. And Michael Bruce, I have an EP that he sings lead vocal on a track. So there are one or two people that I've allowed to sing lead vocals on something, you know, and that's just because they're my musical heroes. But for the most part, I do all the vocals. I actually like Psychedelia that has some accidents in it. So some of the things that you probably consider flaws in this recording, I actually like a lot. Like even just that you have your la-la-las and then everything stops. And the way that you sing the There the Girl with the Stars in Her Hair, obviously you like the performance, right? It's exposed, but it's not even... Like, it's almost, you're getting into talk singing, like, or at least it sounds out of tune in her hair part. Like, it sounds like you captured something spontaneous there and then proceeded to copy it to, you know, happen three times through the song. I think it's in tune with what it is, but that was probably, I believe, that one line was sampled i believe we had a sampler and so each time it came around i'm I'm pretty sure that's what it was again this was 88 or 89 i can't remember when it was maybe it was 1990 we did it again i was listening to a lot of beatles beach boys and that type of stuff and and again the pink floyd pipers at the gate to dawn you know and sid barrett I, a lot of that's influenced by that as well you had described the middle section as being like the yes song and i i completely see what you're saying once you get to the four minutes in where you're singing the chorus lyrics very slowly and doing, you know, love, love, love. It kind of becomes this Raga thing, but you've got quite a bit, two full minutes, more than that before that, of organ solo and then these kind of smeary guitar solo over this drum groove. Is that the part that you're editing down or remixing that you weren't totally happy with? Yeah, I'm editing out the keyboard solo. God bless Greg, <laughs> but I, I'm not crazy about it. I just don't, I think it's okay. It's just not. Now, Roy, the guitarist, he did a fantastic job on slide guitar on that. I just think the keyboard part of it, or, you know, maybe part of it, but some of it, it's just too long. I don't know. I just want a, a more tighter piece, and we'll see what happens with it. But that's, actually, I already did that, so I already edited it, and that piece is already ready to go. I'm just still working on remixing a few other things, as I said, and a couple things into mono. And, you know, there was a track on Pure Electric Honey called The Wrong at Once It Gone. I'd actually slowed down that piece. So I'm bringing that up to the normal speed, which it'll be the first time it'll be on in normal speed on a record. And Flutter by Butterfly, again, I'm mixing it in mono, sort of like the old Beach Boys way they did it. And same with Secrets of the Dead. I'm going to mix that again into mono. And Do You Like Worms has the complete extended version and added part in the middle. And and then there's a piece that's going to be on the compilation is something that features David Allen and Jilly Smythe, again from Gong, that's not on anything. It's a very long piece, but this will be the one album. I'm pretty sure I'm going to do this one on this. It's kind of a cool meditative type of a piece. I'm still just messing around with it right now. Well, that'll be a good David Allen tribute to have that. Right, the great David Allen. I used to, with David Allen, I would used to dream about him, and then I'd hear from him the next day. And he would visit me in my dreams. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to say about a year ago, he visited me in my dream. And it was so real. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I hugged him and, you know, said goodbye to him. And, you know, and I didn't know him that well, but I met him one time. I mean, it was in Washington, D.C. I was a guest at a gong show and went backstage and hung with him and this and that and had photos and told me how much he enjoyed working with me. And he was somebody amazing and one of my heroes. Next to Frank Zappa, I love David Allen and Gong. I mean, there's no one like David Allen. 
So you've got the two parts in this song where the listener might ask, what is going on? What, what am I immersed in here? Well, the first is before the sitar and the raga part comes, everything stops and you just got wind noise. And it's like at least 15 seconds of just wind noise. We're, we're transitioning to a new section, very literally. And then you've got later in the song, this repetitive tape loop percussion thing. You know, in fact, in the video, it fades out to nothing for a second. And I like the way he, he synchronized as if you were playing it on a VCR and it, the tracking was screwed up and it lost track and it, like it just shows a blue screen for a second. Unless that was actually not intentional. Yeah, I don't know what he was thinking on that part <laughs> there. I mean, you know, again, I'm working with a guy that, you know, he had very limited time. So, I, you know, there's some things I would have changed. At the very end, I think the visuals started petering out a little bit. I don't know, I think he was losing some ideas or whatever there. My idea was that if you look on the video, there's a flickering type of a thing where you see one image and you see another image going back between each other. So you've got two films, and I got that as another thing. I got that from Zappa, from his Uncle Meat videos. He would take one film of something, it could have been the band playing or just anybody doing something, and then there's another film, and then you would trade off each film um, square or whatever, little, you know, you'd have one part of the first film and then the, then another part of the second film, you know, just like in second intervals. So you go, so you're seeing two of them at the same time. And on that one part where you hear the drums going down and then coming back up at the end section where it goes back into the chorus and the melody and stuff, he was using that technique, I had him doing that, and, and it kind of went well with it, you know, I it kind of worked with it. But it was just a film technique that, you know, I, I talked him into doing, and I thought it came out pretty cool. I haven't seen anybody else other than Zappa doing that. So what do you feel about, I mean, I guess we, we definitely have that with the long Don Preston thing, where they're just, we're entering different planets here in, in the middle of language of the body, that he's just such a master of his uh, mini Moog I guess, that you had sonically different sections even in that. And here, you know, we've just got, for instance, the wind noise section. Again, how do you decide, you know, like, how long is this going to (laughs) go? Would it be, you know, I could even see as a piece of humor, you know, like how Monty Python kind of will stay on an image for way too long until you're like, what, what the, what is going on here? And I kind of get that feeling a little bit from the wind noise thing, that it's that kind of gesture. So the wind... Then it brings you, you know, you hear the uh, guitar pedal part and then the bass part. Both are using um, volume pedals on that section. Then you'll hear the vocal thing coming up. And it's just sort of, I don't know, just to bring you into another thing. I never thought it was too long on the wind because I think if you listen to it after a minute or two, not more than a minute, I think that everything comes up. I never thought of it that the wind section was too long. I'm just more thinking of this as a general musical gesture that you're not afraid of. That I think it just says more that you think in more in terms of as a composer than as writing a pop song. That the way you introduce this is this is your thing that was going to be more commercial, and yet you have these gestures that are clearly not from the world of maybe one or two years in the late 60s of commercial music. But <laughs> You have to think about this also as well. If I would have gone and tried to do something really commercial and it probably would have flopped anyway, then I probably would have lost the small fan base I have as it is, you know. So it's the type of thing where I've kind of pigeonholed myself into where I'm an avant-garde artist and I'm never going to become a commercial artist, and it's always going to be that way. And I'm never going to make a zillion dollars at doing what I do, but it's just there has to be someone like me. There's got to be an Aunt B out there. You know, there's nobody does what I do. You know, there's other artists that get out there and then maybe more commercial that are making it that sort of elements of, uh, but it just, and I really don't really have that much of an interest, you know, in doing pop music or anything like that. I just, even though I do like some pop stuff, I love the Monkees and I love uh, the Beach Boys and I love Peter Gabriel and I love Alice Cooper and I love T-Rex and there's a lot of pop type stuff, pop rock and whatever, but that's not really the way I am, me as an artist. As a matter of fact, the next record I do after the compilation, if I do, you know, I'm not sure when the next Ampy record will come out, but I'm touring with a, a meditation record called Om, and it's just a 60 minutes of complete musical bliss. <laughs> and it's just all this beautiful music, you know, it's just beautiful sounds and stuff like that, just, you know, rotating against each other and, and revolving and that type of stuff with no beats or anything like that. You know, it's something I'm toying with, you know, something completely different. Which I may, but again, it just depends, you know. I mean, the other thing, I'm, you know, I'm very involved with my publicity company because I rep many well-known music artists, and my time has become real limited, you know. I'm working King Crimson now, their tour, and John Anderson, and 
tons of people. We're Bill Nelson and Bill Bruford. I'm getting ready to do something again with him and Wishbone Ash. And, and so my time now with doing my music, it just, I'm very involved with the publicity company, working with all my favorite musical heroes. There's a couple people I still would like to work with and do publicity with, but uh, I've worked with everybody almost I've ever wanted to, you know, and again, I've been doing singing and some percussion for John Anderson, which is a dream come true. Even in the days of just, you know, doing my Aunt B stuff, I always wanted to do something with John Anderson. He's one of my musical heroes. So it's a God sent and a, a blessing from heaven to be able to work with him and, and other music artists that I, I love. Well, thank you so much for giving your time to talk to me today. We're going to leave folks with your cover of the Beach Boys' Do You Like Worms from the Smile Sessions. You recorded that in 1990. And I will point folks to where in another interview you gave the whole story of how that ended up in European bootlegs. So we don't have to repeat that now. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I mean, it's probably one of the one of the things that actually got me probably more publicity than anything else in my whole entire career was the mistake of being mistaken as the Beach Boys. And frankly, how many artists do you know of out there that were mistaken as the Beach Boys? I don't know of anybody. I'm probably one of the only ones that actually have been mistaken and bootlegged as an outtake from the Beach Boys. And that's a great honor, because I absolutely love Brian Wilson's voice. And another honor, I'm fairly certain he heard my version, and so I understand he, was, he liked it. At least I was mentioned in his tour book, so that was something special. Have a great day. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me on the show.
Thanks so much to Billy, not just, of course, for appearing today, but for helping me in the past get guests for this podcast, including Kevin Godley, Narada Michael Walden, Trey Gunn, Andy Powell, Don Preston, and Annie Haslam. And then, of course, there's a cascading effect that each of those guests got me further guests, gained credibility for the podcast overall, etc. So thank you again to Billy. It's been fascinating to hear about his journey through the industry, and you can find out about his clients and the books that he's collaborated with them on at glassonionpr.com. That's onion with a Y. Also remember antb.com, A-N-T-B-E-E, for his music. Please visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com for more interviews like this one. Subscribe at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever if you have not. Please leave a rating or review there if you have not already. And oh, I could really use your support at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Just a small per-episode contribution will really make a difference at this point. I have some very exciting episodes coming up. Since I just announced them last episode, I'm not going to list them all. But since then, I have talked to David J., the Bauhaus and Love and Rockets bass player and sometime lyricist. He's a poet. He's produced and directed original musicals. His solo work is very much in the Bob Dylan, Tom Waits sort of vein. Very interesting. Thank you so much for listening. I hope these interviews inspire you to make music and discover interesting artists. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. (laughs) 